0: You're listening to the OLLI at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at at olli.unt.edu.
1: now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member
0: Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special.
1: This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. John Neal, an expert in journalism and mass communication. He received his Ph.D. right here from the University of North Texas and, while attending graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin, he worked at the Harry Ransom Center Photography Collection. Dr. Neal has given presentations for the Texas Intercollegiate Press Association and the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. We have benefited from his expertise in a variety of classes. He has taught at Ollie, including the History of Photography and Typography. Welcome John.
0: Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. It's
1: great to have you here. You have a depth of knowledge in so many areas concerning photography, typography, and journalism. Do you have a particularly favorite area of interest?
0: Well, I like them all very much, so I had to think about this one for a while, and they're all related to uh, communication. But of the three, I think photography is the one that I'm most interested in. Uh, When I was a child, I had cameras and I loved to take pictures. And then when I was 19, I got together with some of my friends and we decided to make a short movie using an 8mm film camera. I was the camera operator and we had a director and we had actors and we just had a lot of fun, but even though we had a lot of limitations, We found out how much work goes into making even a short film if you want to make it coherent. I've also been very fond of 3D photography since I was very young. When I was in graduate school at the University of Texas, I wrote a research paper about the 3D movies of the 1950s. My professor liked it, and he became one of my thesis advisors. In 2014, I put together an exhibit of 3D pictures that I had taken, printed, and mounted. A box of cardboard 3-D glasses was placed by the sign-in book so visitors could see the images in 3-D.
1: You've done quite a bit. I can see why you enjoy photography. It is fascinating. I love photography Mm -hmm. myself, and it's such a terrific area. Now, you had worked during your time at the University of Texas in Austin at the Harry Ransom Center. What did you do during your work there?
0: Well, I was a graduate student at UT Austin, and I began going to the photography collection so often that I was given a part time job <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, this job required identifying copy prints of rare photographs. The photography collection would get requests for prints from book and periodical publishers, and we would send them copy prints for a small fee. One day I answered the phone, and it was Encyclopedia Britannica going to use a picture. UT purchased a large private collection in 1963 that had been owned by a man named Helmut Gernsheim. And there was a stack of unidentified copy prints in the Gernsheim collection when I began working there. So we did have copy prints made on campus, but it was much simpler to take that pile of pictures and identify them and file them and we would have them already. So I became familiar with the collection's holdings as a result of doing that and found out that it included not only rare photographs, but numerous publications about photography as well as photography equipment from the 19th century. I decided that I wanted to write my thesis about 3D photography in England during the 1850s, so I went through many volumes of bound photographic publications looking for references about stereoscopic photography. I narrowed the topic to arguments made by British photographers and scientists in the 1850s about the exaggeration of 3D effects.
1: How fascinating. What a terrific place to work while you're studying that subject. It must have been a phenomenal way to truly learn. What you were studying about and writing about. Such a world renowned center.
0: It was, and I would just happen onto things Uh, Lewis Carroll's personal photograph (gasps) album that was autographed by the people he would take pictures of, or something like that. Oh,
1: that's amazing. It was
0: really fantastic. One.
1: That truly is. Your classes at Ollie have included a wonderful review of the science and art of photography and the steps involved in shaping the art and the strategies used to develop the medium. It's something that we take so for granted. Pictures, cameras, we've all got cameras, we've got smartphones, We everybody's taking pictures everywhere. But it's truly an art form and a science and that's what you've been teaching. Can you tell us first of all how old photography
0: is? Well photography as we know it goes back to either 1826 or early 1827. Hmm. Before that there were some inventions and discoveries that led up to that but the first photograph made of nature, something in nature, as opposed to just placing something directly on photographic paper and getting a shadow of it, was made in France probably in 1826. It's now on permanent display in the Ransom Center And it was made not using silver, as most photographs came to be made with, but with a very thin layer of bitumen, which was a kind of asphalt, coated onto a pewter plate. And so the action of light over a period of eight hours, we know the sun went all the way across the sky, or maybe even several days, hardened the bitumen, and the rest that hadn't hardened was removed with a solvent, and that made the image permanent.
1: What highlights do you like to mention in reviewing the history of the art and science of photography?
0: Two things were required to make photographs. One was a camera obscura, a device to make the photographs with. And the principle of a camera obscura was known to Aristotle and even to the Chinese before that. Aristotle, That's so old. Yes. And Aristotle noticed that the light passing through the leaves of trees made circles, sunlight circles, which is the shape of the sun, but during an the eclipse they made crescents. And so he deduced that, that was the light was passing through and forming an image. And so that's the basis of pinhole cameras and of the camera obscuros which were to come. But that's Latin for dark chamber. People would put a hole in one wall and the rest of the room would be closed and dark and an image of whatever was outside would project on the opposite wall, upside down and backward, but moving it in color. And so it's believed that artists used that technique beginning in the 1400s probably, because all of a sudden art became much more realistic looking, paintings did, and they used that to help make sketches of what they were gonna paint.
1: That's <clears throat> fascinating, I had no idea.
0: So the first camera obscures that were small, not a whole room, were a little bit bigger than a shoebox, and they had ground glass on the back. And so the image would be upside down, and you could trace, using tracing paper, you could trace. And they used that for medical illustrations and things like that. And then somebody had the idea of putting a mirror in one, and that made the image on top of the camera obscura, so it would be backwards, right to left, but not upside down. So
1: it flip it over. Mm-hmm.
0: So these became popular after around 1500 or so, and a lot of people owned these just because they were fun to have. Thomas Jefferson owned one. He did. We were going through Monticello just on the tour, and we were going through the main room, and I saw a camera obscura sitting over on the table. And I asked our guy, I said, is that a camera obscura? And she said, yes, that is Jefferson owned one. So then the question was, why didn't it somebody to put something light-sensitive in there and make the image permanent? And so some people began to try. And the first person who was successful was this Frenchman, Joseph Niepce who put this pewter plate in and made the exposure over hours. Well, that was a very practical process. So Niepce got together with Louis Daguerre, who was a famous painter in France. And Daguerre had a lot of money. Niepce's family had fallen on hard times. And so the two signed an agreement in 1829 that they would work together to perfect photography. In 1833, Niepce had a stroke and died. So Daguerre went ahead and worked on the process and came up with a different process using silver plated onto copper in a camera obscura and it worked and he named it after himself.
1: Did that speed that up a little bit? Did that speed up image? Very much so.
0: It made it from hours and hours down to a matter of minutes. Still it couldn't freeze action, so Daguerre took a picture in the 1830s, uh, around 1838 he took a picture out of his window of a busy boulevard in Paris. And it's like you don't see horses or carts or people or anything. It's like a ghost town. But you know it's a busy street in the middle of the day. But if you look closely at it, there's a man getting his shoes shined. And he and the person shining his shoes stayed still long enough to register. And so we believe those are the first two people ever to be in a photograph.
1: I have to look that picture up. Okay. (laughs) That's It's very interesting to look at. I should say.
0: So at any rate, after that, uh, Daguerre made his announcement in 1839, and the world knew that photography existed, but he didn't give the details until later, around August of 1839. And then he presented it free to the world, except for England. And in England, you had to pay for a kit and pay for a license (laughs) to be a daguerreotypist. But this made photography something that the world hadn't seen before. And it was much quicker and easier and more accurate than most paintings. But there were some brilliant scientists in England, and in fact, one of them was working with photography on paper at the same time. He had been sketching on vacation, and he thought, I wonder if I couldn't just make the image in the camera obscura permanent. So he tried putting a piece of writing paper into a silver bath, putting a camera obscura and exposing it for hours and hours, and he got an image but he didn't think that was very practical. So he didn't make the announcement until he heard about Daguerre. And so then he said, wait a minute, I've been doing this too. But he took the first photograph on paper and the first paper negative. And this was at his home, which was Laycock Abbey in England, uh, not too far from the city of Bath. He took a picture of a latticed window at Laycock Abbey and it was a paper negative. And from a paper negative, you can put that on top of another sheet of sensitized paper and make a positive, and make another positive, and another positive. The photographs on metal, you couldn't do that. So he came up with photography on paper and the negative positive process. So Leslie and I went there a few years ago, and we got to stand right in that window and take pictures of it. It's, it's fascinating to be right there where it happened.
1: It is fascinating. It sounds incredibly wonderful to actually be there when you know the history that was made at the time. This
0: man's name was William Henry Fox Talbot, but most people just okay. calling him Fox Talbot. T A L B O T.
1: Now I've seen old photographs from my family. Mm-hmm. Did they have to sit a long time the for those? Yeah. Is that why they always look so serious?
0: That's one of the reasons. Another was that it just wasn't the fashion to smile until the early 1900s. Don't know why that was. Didn't think it was appropriate to smile in photographs. But they did have those uncomfortable clamps behind their heads. Uh, Matthew Brady used stands that they could lean on. It looked just like they were leaning on a table or something, so he tried to make it look natural. Fox Talbot would post people around Laycock Abbey doing work. And they would be having to be standing there for minutes as still as possible. And it had to be uncomfortable for them.
1: Had to have been. You mentioned Matthew Brady and also your work with stereoscopes and your interest Mm -hmm. in writing and that. I don't remember the name of the book, but I had a book on Matthew Brady photographs Mm -hmm. from the Civil War that had the glasses that you put on Mm -hmm. for stereoscopes.
0: Yes, I have a book like that. It's uh, probably
1: it's, the same uh-huh. one. It's an amazing book. I had seen the old Civil War pictures before in history books, mm-hmm. and they were flat. And when I was able to look at the pictures that he had taken with the glasses on and mm-hmm. seen them in 3D, it was incredible.
0: Yes. By the time of the Civil War, a new process had come along. The daguerreotype was so popular, but there was a new type of photography that was on glass. And there's a man named Frederick Scott Archer who came up with this idea and so he would dip or pour onto the glass this sticky substance called collodion and then put it in a silver bath and that made the silver stick to the glass and because the glass is perfectly smooth It would make a wonderful negative, and then you could print onto paper and have a much sharper picture than you could if you were printing through paper. So by the time of the Civil War, most of the photographers were using one or the other, but a lot of them were using this called wet plate collodion process. The drawback of it was that you had to put it into the camera wet, the plate wet, and then take it out and develop it while it was still wet, or it lost its sensitivity to light.
1: Sounds pretty challenging during a situation like the Civil War.
0: Well, they had to either take a van, or a strong van that had all these glass bottles and everything in it, and they also made a pretty good target if, you know, somebody was shooting. Absolutely. Or take a tent with them and, and try to do all this work in the tent. But you had to prepare the plate, take the picture, and develop it right there on the spot. So it was a lot of work that they went through to accomplish what they did. And Brady funded it. A lot of times... People have given Brady credit for pictures that he didn't really take. He had made a fortune doing portrait photography in the 1850s, and he largely financed it. How many of the pictures he took, we're still not sure, but he did have a whole team of photographers taking them and We were gradually learning who some of them were, Timothy O'Sullivan and others. But a large number of them were in 3D. As you say, a large number of pictures of Abraham Lincoln were in 3D.
1: Oh, I haven't seen those mm-hmm. either. Oh, more for me to look up. Yes. <laughs> and this is—are these mm-hmm. the stereoscopes that you mentioned? Is that yes. the same as 3D?
0: Yes. It okay. Is. So, what happened to go back just a little bit back mm-hmm. in the 1830s? There was a British scientist named Charles Wheatstone, and he came up with the idea of drawing geometric shapes like cubes, and as if they were seen from different angles, and putting them off to the right and left and then staring into a mirror so that one eye was directed toward one and one toward the other to see if they would look like they were hanging in space in three dimensions. And they did. So when, when he learned about photography, they tried it and it just didn't work well for the photographs. So in 1849, there was a man from Scotland named Sir David Brewster. And he had 30 years earlier invented or patented the kaleidoscope. And he came up with the lenticular stereoscope, which looks very much like a viewmaster of the 20th century. And you could look at it, you could look at glass views, uh, because it had ground glass on the bottom, you could hold it up to light, or you could look look at paper views by sliding them in and opening up a flap that let light in. So this, he came up with in 1849, and a French manufacturer started making these. And when the Great Exhibition was held in 1851 in London, the Crystal Palace, Queen Victoria went through and she was looking at all the displays and she saw the stereoscopes and just loved them. So all of a sudden, if the queen liked it, the people wouldn't know what it was about. And it just became an instant phenomenon. Uh, By 1854, there was a company called the London Stereoscopic Company and their motto was no home without a stereoscope. (laughs) So when you go visit friends, you would go look at their stereo pictures with the stereoscope and see things in 3D.
1: Well, it certainly is different Mm -hmm. to see a 3D picture. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned in your class a connection between the stereoscope and the 3D movies.
0: Yes, each one of them requires that one eye sees one picture and one eye sees a slightly different angle of the same picture. So the stereoscope does that because you're looking through two different eyepieces. The 3D movies do that because They are projected through polarizers, the two images, at different angles. And your glasses are polarized at different angles. So one eye sees one image and one sees the other. If you take the glasses off, you see double images. So
1: it tricks your brain. Your brain puts the two images together and makes it 3D.
0: Yes. Oh, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. And you can do tricks with that. There are all kinds of tricks that photographers were using even in the 1850s uh, to manipulate the 3D images. And that's a lot of what my thesis was about.
1: Well, I'm surprised with all this history of the 3D and photography that what I see now are one-dimensional photographs. There's a lot that's going on with photography and digital photography and those kinds of technical advancements. But I don't see much on the 3D. Why is that?
0: Uh, It's kind of a specialized interest, but I'm interested in it, and there are quite a few uh, fans of 3D. I am now, too. (laughs) (laughs) A few years ago, it was in 2014, I put together an exhibition of 3D prints that I made using a digital 3D camera that has two lenses. And so it would print uh, one image in blue or cyan and one image in red, and then the people who came to the exhibit would put on the red and blue glasses and they could see the images in 3D. So, 3D's still here and it keeps recycling. It's like it'll come into favor, it'll go out and then it'll come back.
1: With your thesis being on 3D photography, what did you focus on?
0: It was completely on the arguments on either side of whether you should exaggerate the depth in the pictures.
1: So what happens when you exaggerate the depth? What does that mean?
0: It means that you can see depth when you put these pictures in a stereoscope that you couldn't see with your eyes because after a certain distance, things look flat. Even the moon looks flat to us. It just looks like a disk because it's so far away. But there was an astronomer in 1858 who took pictures at opposite stages of the moon's wobble and put those in a stereoscope and looking at it in, through the stereoscope, you see the moon as a sphere in 3D. That's incredible. Which didn't happen again until the astronauts got close enough to see the moon as a sphere.
1: So to increase that depth, what would they do with the cameras? You said they'd take two cameras and they put them together. Would they move them farther apart?
0: And with the wobble of the moon, somebody figured out that it was the equivalent of having eyes that are 52,000 miles apart. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's why you can see it as a sphere.
1: How interesting. Now, jumping a little bit from photography, you've also offered a very interesting course on the history of typography, and I know the use and selection of type and typography plays an important part in everything we see every day, from trademarks to newspapers and books. I wonder what sorts of things you like to feature in a discussion on the history and the use of typography.
0: Well, I start off with the development of writing and of the alphabet and the different changes that the alphabet went through. The Romans, for example, took the Greek alphabet and added little finishing strokes that we call serifs. And we still have, today, have typefaces that have serifs and some that don't.
1: Right, uh, the sans serifs and the serifs. Yes.
0: Yeah, the sans serifs have no serifs. <laughs> and so, for a long time, after printing started with Gutenberg, what Gutenberg did was to, around 1450s, 1450, 1454, 55, he began printing using metal type that could be moved around and that would hold up for a long number of impressions. Before that, there had been woodblock printing, which was a lot of trouble because you had to cut out a wood block, and the wood didn't hold up for very long. You couldn't make a lot of copies. But with metal movable type, you could make any number of copies. So this is a mass production thing that he's come up with. He had to come with a new kind of ink to make the ink stick to the metal, so it was stickier. All of a sudden, books became plentiful, whereas before they'd been very scarce and very expensive. And all of a sudden people became more literate as a result of that because they wanted to learn how to read so they could read these books.
1: You didn't have to have the monks there transcribing everything. Oh yes,
0: that's right. That was very difficult work. And they might make a mistake and then what do you do if you make a mistake and you're working on parchment? And Some people would say you had to start completely over and some people would say well you can kind of rub off a layer of the parchment and then write it in. So it depended on who you were working for. But Gutenberg's process, he wanted to look like this, the handwriting of the time. So it was called Textura, and it's really kind of hard to read. It looks like a picket fence if you look at a page of it, but it just changed everything. So other people began to set up print shops. there in this town of Mainz in what is now Germany. And then they heard that they were about to be invaded, so the younger printers just put all their stuff on wagons and went all over Europe. So that's one reason why printing spread so quickly. So I talk about that, I talk about different type styles, how they were designed, and some of them look very beautiful on the page, but wouldn't be that easy to read. And some of them wouldn't look so nice, but they would be uh, very easy to read. And an example of that is Caslon type, which was designed by William Caslon. It's very easy to read, but it didn't look wonderful on the printed page. But because it was so easy to read, when they printed up copies of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin recommended that they use Caslon because it was easy to read.
1: I look at old newspapers and they're so hard to read. They yeah. just have everything all crammed together and sometimes they do have the fancy writing in it. Mm-hmm. You really have to focus to be able to read an article.
0: Yes. Yeah, the news wasn't organized as well and the headlines weren't there until 19th century that they started changing that over and making it easier to read. But you're right. You, really, you had to work to read it a newspaper or a periodical.
1: And I know sometimes now you can look at a different font and actually connect it with a product.
0: Oh, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so there are different type styles for for different products, and sometimes they change over time to update them, and some of them are done so well they don't do that because it's so familiar to people. But everything printers did for a long time was pretty much serif type or Roman type. It's also called sometimes. And then in about 1816, a descendant of Caslons, William Caslon IV, decided to take the serifs off of letters and start using sans serif type. And because the letters look so strange, some people call them Gothic and some people call them grotesque. And today we have some typefaces that have those words in their name. There's Franklin Gothic and Accidents Grotesque.
1: So sans serif type was not very well accepted when it first came out because it, it was different?
0: Yes. At first it was just strange to people and they mainly used it on posters. And they would use a very large type size and they would mix serif and send serif and poster design just became awful in the 19th century. They'd put as, the letters as big as they could fit on there in all different styles. And then eventually, by the late 19th century, they decided to start refining the posters and make them look a lot better. Especially. I think
1: that's true in, like, mm-hmm. Graphic Design 101, when you find out people can <laughs> do different things and they want to do everything. Mm-hmm. So there you don't know even where to look. Everything's all used. Everything you possibly can put in there can be put in there.
0: So there were two things that really boosted the use of uh, serif types. One was, the main one was in 1916, London Transport commissioned someone to design a typeface for them and he did that, it was called Johnston's Railway Type. And that, all of a sudden it was seen all over London for London Transport, for the underground stations and everything. So that really got things started and other people started designing sensitive typefaces. The other was, I mentioned Accidents Grotesque, which was designed over a period of years from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that became the basis for Helvetica which is probably the best-known sensor serif typeface, which came out in 1957. It's a refined version of Accident's Grotesque.
1: I have seen font names that you're talking about mm-hmm. and had no idea of the history associated with them. What a terrific class you must have. I'd be much, much smarter if I went to one of your classes. <laughs>
0: oh, well, it's fun to teach, I love this, and it's, it's fun for me to share it with the students. In fact, the original name for Helvetica was Noya Haas Grotesque. That was kind of hard to remember. Neue meant new, and Haas was a type foundry, and grotesque I meant a So. The Germans just started calling it Helvetica, which was the Roman name for Switzerland, and that's where it was designed. So Helvetica caught on, and that's what we've called it ever since.
1: Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you would like to share?
0: Um, one thing I'd like to share is that type designers began designing for computer screens in the 1980s and 1990s, and one in particular i like to talk about is Matthew Carter, because he learned typography in the 1950s, and he learned how to do it the way Gutenberg did and then in the 1990s, Microsoft commissioned him to design a typeface for use on computer screens.
1: Well, thank you so much. What a fascinating interview.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. And I've just always enjoyed talking about all this. it will be interesting to see where things go from here with photography and typography.
1: Thank you. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. John Neal.